This is episode 22 of the Immunology Podcast, Maternal Immune Cells with Dr. Francesco Pellucci. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Francesco Colucci from Cambridge University on the podcast to talk about his research on the role of uterine immune cells in pregnancy. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Explore scientific resources for your immunology research at the Stem Cell Technologies Immunology Learning Center. Choose from different research areas and find expert interviews, technical tips, educational webinars, instructional videos, and much more. Visit stemcell.com forward slash immunology hyphen research. Well, Brenda, you just came back from Argentina, didn't you? I did, just freshly out of the plane. Well, the no good jet news lag. Is you don't sound like a robot today on this podcast. I know. I'm sorry, listeners, for last uh, we for last time's really poor audio. But you you'd be surprised that it looks like good internet has not arrived into the Argentinian Andes. My apologies. Alas. Well, while you were out, we got some uh, hot Twitter action going on from openboxscience.org has been starting to tweet and see what we're doing. Uh, they're a new collaboration here uh, that is an NGO that helps set up uh, free and virtual talks for scientists. I don't know if you've been able to check that out. I noticed. Thank you guys so much for the exposure. It was really nice to to have some likes from them. So my shout out to Juan Huang, Jerry Lin, and Eugenio Contreras, who are the, the, the people behind the enterprise. Brenda, I'm just going to have you say the names of everyone on that comes on the podcast because, like, you know, your seven languages you speak or whatever makes life much easier. <laughs> Especially the Hispanic ones. Those, those are my, those are my forte. I got, I got Spanish okay, but you have, like, all the other ones. Dutch, well, thank you. French, it's just a gift. Like, German. It's a gift. Merci. Merci. But I'm glad to be back and just to talk about a couple of really cool papers I, I, I came up, stumbled across, uh, so I'd also hear about what you have today. All right. Well, why don't you go first? You had so much time to read on that plane. I'm sure you are ready to go. I know. Okay. Let me, I, I'm going to just talk. I have to say I'm very excited about these two papers I chose. Uh, they have been creating a little bit of, uh, uh, how you say, talk around science Twitter. So I thought it was really cool to talk about these two papers uh, are talking about the a link, uh, so about the link between Epstein-Barr virus infection and the development development of multiple sclerosis. Oh. So and, the papers have gone viral. You're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. What a pun! I have to say, I was not expecting such bad jokes, but for the all the miles. Just yeah, you, that's that is your forte. That jokes. Uh, exactly. So these viral papers uh, about viruses and autoimmune uh, disorders are have been a really great read. And it's nice because they really uh, complement each other. So I'm going to start with the first paper that was published. It was already a couple of weeks ago, so it's not the freshest paper in the blog, but I just really wanted to talk about it. So this paper was published in Science uh, by uh, a group at um, at Harvard. First authors, Kietil Bjorn. Bjornovic and Mariana Cortesa uh, from the lab of Cassandra Munger and Alberto Ascario at Harvard, as I said. And it was published in Science, and it's called Longitudinal Analysis Reveals High Prevalence of Epstein-Barr Virus Associated with Multiple Sclerosis. So it, it has been known for a while, or has been a, 
seen for a while that there's there seems to be a link between Epstein Bar Epstein uh, Bar virus infection or mononucleosis, as other people might know it, uh, which is very common. So most adults, like 95% of adults, have are seropositive for this virus, so have been infected with it at some point in their life. So it's extremely ubiquitous, and um, and it has been there's there has already been a thought or there's a lot of evidence that suggests a link between infection with this virus and the development of multiple sclerosis. It is always very hard to establish causality with this kind of incidence numbers and the fact that MS is very rare. Um, so as you cannot really do a kind of a clinical trial to see if uh, EVV infection will give you multiple sclerosis, uh, this paper capitalized on a source of uh, information that I hadn't, I wouldn't have thought about it, but it's, it's brilliant. They took in total, they followed 10 million subjects from the U.S. Army. So they followed people that got into the U.S. Army and they had to give serum or like blood samples and that time for HIV uh, uh, testing and they were tested uh, regularly throughout their service. And they followed the patients that were initially EVV negative. So they were seronegative for EV, EVV. And they follow them throughout the time. And from these, some of them developed MS. So what are the numbers? 10 million subjects throughout this study, which lasted 20 years, around 955 people developed multiple sclerosis. From this 955, 35 were initially EVV negative. And so what they show is that uh, throughout the follow-up, these people that developed uh, MS, an EVV infection was always right previous to the development of multiple sclerosis. It was always preceded by a seropositive result, except on one patient from the 35. And this seroconversion, was, which was a 97% seroconversion, was substantially higher than in patients that did not develop MS, which is, was about 57%. So these numbers add up to around 32-fold increased risk of uh, MS after EVV infection. They compare this to another virus that is uh, transmitted similarly, which is a CNV, and they show that CNV infection had no, was no increased risk of MS uh, with, uh, after CNV infection, which would, to some extent, control for lifestyle or other kind of exposures because these two viruses have very similar, very similar epidemiological uh, prop, uh, kind of uh, presentations. So, and so they, had, they started with this, and then they also show they used uh, a measurement, which is uh, neurofilament light chain uh, concentrations in the serum, which is a fairly kind of general marker of uh, neuroactional degeneration, which is not really specific for MS. But they also show that this uh, neurodegeneration is increased after EVV seroconversion in the patients that developed MS. They also, so when, when they, what they try to, to find is uh, kind of try a little bit more, take a closer look in the, in the relationship between these two events. And they show that, uh, um, that uh, within the, the, the antibodies that, uh, that are raised in, in, this, in this patient, 
Many of them are, so they have a, a lot of them are specific against EVB. And uh, that, so they also see that these patients are responding against EVB. And uh, what I, what they say, so they also, uh, they, they, so they make a connection between B cells and, um, and the development of, of, of MS also because they also, so they also mention the fact that one of the most effective treatments for MS kind of not, it's not really clear uh, how, but it is actually anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies which are depleting B, uh, memory B cells or, or B cells in the in, mostly in the blood. They're not as good to to go through the the, the into this cerebral cerebral spinal fluid, but they they show that um, that so with this information they they put together that it is the immune response against EVB that somehow is triggering MS in, uh, the development of, of multiple sclerosis and. I thought it was so they, they provide really strong epidemiological uh informal kind of evidence. Uh and they have so they show that they find this this uh antibodies that are re, uh, against EVB and they made a really good case when it comes to kind of the epidemiological numbers. And I maybe then I want to this is a really nice connection to the next paper that came up a, a couple of days later or maybe a week or so after in which they actually look at a mechanism by which EVV can trigger this immune response that is that is related to B cell responses in the in, in MS patients. So then maybe we can talk about your paper and then I can come back. Whew. So so real quick there before we shift gears completely and then come back. It sounds this is kind of reminds me of what happens to strep throat and rheumatic fever, where you get like this response to strep and then sometimes it attacks the heart valves and some subset of kids it's not treated well or even like celiac disease right where like some people develop an automatic so it sounds like once in a great great while there is this terrible accident and it cross reacts is that basically what we're getting at here yes and that is exactly what the next paper goes around all so, right well, i will not steal your yes so it's right, just, so just Hold your guns because this is, I think it's a brilliant story. Like both of them together coming at the same time. It's, it's, it was a really nice. Really oh, nice some way. editors totally held this back or talked to each other to have them come. Yeah, but it's funny because this came in science. And when I want to talk, the next paper I'm going to talk about came in nature. Yeah, they talked it's, to each it's other. Coming, I mean, this yeah. is a thing, right? Like, like when the genome was produced, like, all right, who gets which one? Let's do it. <laughs> no yeah, well, they all want a piece of this. So, exactly. so what, what, do you, what cool story do you have for All me right. today? So I went to some nanoengineering here, uh, lipid decoys. So this is immunoengineered nano decoys from the multi-target anti-inflammatory treatment of autoimmune diseases. This paper is actually in advanced materials. Uh, first author is Meng Ying Ho, um, and it was published super recently in uh, January 19th. So... This paper does some really interesting stuff. It takes lipid nanoparticles, or, or not in case, not excuse me, not lipid nanoparticles to start with. It's a polylactoglycolic acid nanoparticle. It can be a disc or a sphere. And they take it and then they dip that in lipids from macrophages, raw cells, murine macrophages, before or after pretreatment with interferon gamma. And if they pretreat with interferon gamma, it activates the cells more, more PD-1 ligand, more PD-1 
L expressing macrophage membranes appear. So those macrophages make more PDL1 and a bunch of other things and show that by pre-treating the macrophages, it enhances the properties I'm about to talk about. So what do you do with these fancy lipid, these fancy membrane coated nanoparticles made out of a polyglycolic acid? Well, you can use it to scavenge cytokines and PD-1L inhibitor ligand that's, or PD-1 that's floating that is actually um, immune activating instead of immunosuppressive, right? Because it, it has the opposite role if it's the soluble form versus the membrane though. So, so what they do is they show both in a rheumatoid model and in colitis, and then more generally, like if you, hey, if you take this and put this in cell culture and look at what's in the media that's been absorbed by these or any other system or in the circulation, and they do kinetics in the blood circulation as well, but they show at a super high, at the very highest level of this, you inject this, it soaks up cytokines. It soaks up soluble PD-1 and decreases inflammation and disease outcomes in a rheumatoid model of rheumatoid arthritis model in the mouse and in the DSS colitis model. And they show that the pretreatment is really important for the extra functionality. And uh, they basically serve as sponges, right? Because they have all these receptors that can like suck up all the cytokines and absorb things, but, they, the, but, the, but that, they can't do anything, right? Because they're not a cell. They can then signal when their receptors are bound to something. So it's very, very interesting. I was very interested in like this kind of concept of nanotechnology here that they're using. Because um, you could also reproduce it pretty well, right? You can take a standardized cell culture, standardized treatment, fractionate it. You would have to switch to human cells. Um, but yeah, they do the uh, ZIA model. This is a, I have to pull up the, the exact acronym here. But this is one of the uh, standard models of RA that they do this in. Um, and then they do DSS colitis, but they show that it, it de not just, it not just de not just like, oh, cytokines are absorbed from the bloodstream, it downstream affects the disease status. And that's what I found really interesting. So it's a general application, but you could then think about tuning it for different cell types that you'd coat with to then get different properties or different absorption. Um, so I thought it was just a, a unique different type of treatment. You know, we've had CAR T cell therapies. We've had, you know, I, I work on microbiome therapies. You have immune checkpoint inhibitors, but what about like good sponges? We have Embryol, which is a pseudoreceptor, but that's one protein, right? And this, they show this outcompetes anti-TNF inhibitors and outcompetes other systems that are just single molecule targets. It's polymolecular, right? So it can absorb multiple different cytokines. And that's pretty cool. Pull it in. Yeah. And so the but paper really goes step by step, shows it in vitro, how it works, shows that you have better properties with this pretreatment, goes on, shows that if you just have a mouse in general, what it absorbs, inflamed mouse, they do live imaging, they then go for disease model after disease model, and, uh, and then really hit the two disease models. They do biodistribution studies as well. So the specificity, they, they coat these nanoparticles to give them the, the specificity against the molecule they want to absorb. Right, they take raw macrophages, raw, yeah, raw 264.7. They take those macrophages, pre-treat them with interferon gamma to upregulate some of the receptors to make them better. And then they like sonicate it and break the membrane up, throw the 
particle in there that coats the particle. Right. And that makes the, that makes the drug. You guys can't hear the air quotes, but there's air quotes there. Can't see it. Make the <laughs> drug, right? That we're talking about. And then they inject that and then, or they can put in culture and show effects there, but they can inject it into a diseased mouse and it ameliorates the disease by absorbing the cytokines. That's true. Super cool. And is there these particles, do they get uh, taken taken out? Like how do they get, they get degraded? Cleared over, they get cleared, they get cleared over cleared time, out. right? So they're, 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 they're lipid particles. So they're going to, I don't know if they're, I don't think they did excretion in liver versus kidney, but they're going to get degraded over time. Okay. So they, they don't want to accumulate or generate any yeah. other effects. That's, as far that's as they a, can see. I agree. That's a really cool, um, what do you say, approach. I never thought about like, yeah, putting sponges to take out this, the cytokines. Yeah. Well, there's one drug with. that does it. As I said, Embryol is a pseudoreceptor for TNF, but they have, but this works even better than Remicade or Humira and, and you know, a monoclonal antibody version, yes. which is stronger because it has killing effects. Like anti-TNF antibodies kill cells that have too much TNF on them, which makes them work better than Embryol soaking up. But this doesn't soak up one, it soaks up a bunch. And that's what's so neat. It's not just one molecule, right? It's the whole cascade. If you take an activated macrophage, it acts like an activated macrophage sink. So instead of the signals yeah. going to the macrophages, it goes to this decoy. Very cool. Really okay. Neat. So I nice. liked it because I like biophysics. Well, thanks for sharing, Jason. All right. So tell me more about MS and how uh, the immune priming and the accidental cross-rect. Well, gladly. So after reading this first paper that was published a bit before, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And then sometime later, a new paper came up. And this is kind of presented uh, ahead of this accelerated uh, review from, from Nature. So it's technically not still published, but it's there available. First author, Tobias Lance, uh, from the lab of William Robinson at Stanford. And in this case, the paper is titled Clonally Expanded B-Cells in Multiple Sclerosis Bind EVB, EBNA1, and Glial CAM. So this already gives you an idea. So they find a really nice mechanism, one of them, the mechanisms by which uh, EVV could trigger MS, through finding molecular mimicry between a, uh, one, a, a protein from uh, a methotranscription factor from EVV and a, and a protein that's expressed in the, in the CNS, which is known as glial cam. So let me, let me walk you through this. Um, the... What they did is they took cerebrospinal uh, fluid from, from MS patients and they looked, so, and they looked into the, the repertoire of antibodies that are, are expressed, of the B cells that are expressing antibodies in, 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 this, in the context of the CSF. So what we know is that, um, that there's, there's, a big, there's a big B cell component in the pathology of MS. There are some certain uh, characteristics of MS that that point towards an important in the importance of B cells in their uh, in, in this in this uh, disease, such as the expression of what they what are known as oligoclonal bands, which are specific clonal uh, antibodies that are shown as as distinct bands in a, in a gel when when you look into the CSF of, of MS patients, and as I mentioned before, the fact that if the depletion of B cells is apparently one of the most efficacious uh, therapies for MS, although it's not kind of good enough for, for being a, a real therapy, but it does reduce the, the incidence of, of MS in, in patients that are relapsing. 
And and as I mentioned, no, and, and following from the latest, the last publication, there is a strong correlation between MS and EVB infection. Uh, and there is a lot. Often are there are often found antibodies against EVBs uh, and uh, EVB antigens are found in MS patients. And there's a certain kind of hot spots, certain uh, of the, in the sequence of, of 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 antigens from EVBs, such as EBNA one, which are particularly immune, uh, found to be immunoreactive in in this in these patients. So they took patient, they took CSF and blood samples from nine MS patients, some of them which were at the onset of disease, and some were having an acute uh, relapse, and they isolated uh, the the B cells. Uh, from from the from these cells from these uh, fluids, uh, they also notice, for example, that there's a high there are higher plasma blast sound, uh, counts in CSF of MS patients. So there's a lot of plasma cells that are producing uh, antibodies there, and uh, there is yeah a high abundance of basically IgGs, which suggests that these B cells have have been have matured and are producing uh, really um, they're they're producing a lot of antibodies in there, and they do a lot of like really like a lot of work by uh, single cell sequencing all of the the the, the heavy the uh, so full length paired heavy chain and light chain uh, sequencing of the of the plasma blasts in in CSF and blood of these patients and they also include some control patients which are patients that have other type of neuroinflammatory diseases as as controls. And they characterize this repertoire and they already notice really stark differences between MS patients and other inflammatory uh, disease patients and between the CSF and uh, the blood. So they know, they show, and they show, and this has, was already kind of known that there is uh, more oligoclonal B cells in the CFS and, uh, sorry, CSF, and uh, compared to the blood. And this is also the case for, for uh, patients with MS versus other inf uh, inflammatory, uh, neuroinflammatory diseases. They show that there's uh, ex uh, the, 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 these antibodies or these, these uh, receptors have evidence of uh, somatic hypermutation. So these have been uh, really matured antibodies in, inside this, uh, the CSF. And what is also interesting, there's a skewage towards five particular heavy chain variable genes, which is also kind of had already been described. So, so far, kind of, this is, I think, was mostly expected. Um, but then what, what I think is really, really cool is that they look into all of the, they take 148 BCR sequences and they express them as monoclonal antibodies. And then they use a protein microarray uh, that contains uh, lysates from EVV and also proteins and peptides that are kind of um, encompassing all of the VEV proteome, and also dissets from other uh, viruses, particularly all other viruses that are neurotropic, so CMV and and and, this, and the like. So other also other herpes viruses, and they show that one third of the express so of these highly clonal monoclonal antibodies that they so that they express as monoclonal antibodies derived from the CSF fluid are binding to EBV proteins and about 70% are binding to other viruses that are also found in the uh, that are also are associated to CNS what is interesting is that 
eight of nine patients had monoclonal antibodies that find that bind to the EVBNA1, which is a transcript, transcription factor from EVB. And they focus, they kind of really focus on one particular antibody, which they call MS39P2W174. I'm just going to mention it to MS39 uh, monoclonal antibody, which binds to a particular region that it has been associated with multiple, with MS uh, anti, uh, associated antibodies, which is 365 to 405. And it's really nice. They really show the uh, how this, this antibody is binding. They do some crystallographic analysis. But what is really cool is that they find that this an a monoclonal antibody not only binds to EBBNA1, but it also binds to glial cam, which is this protein that is expressed on uh, mostly uh, astrocytes and oligodendrocytes in the CNS. They do this by using a HUPROT uh, microarray, so basically a microarray spanning 80% of the hemoproteome, and that's how they found this, this, this binding. And when they compare the binding between uh, uh, EVBNA1 and glial cam, there are some differences which explain why this antibody probably kind of came up in the first, in the first place. This antibody is hypermutated, so it's different from the germline. But the germline the germ uh, receptor can also bind to EBBNA1, so which already naive cells already have a binding predisposition to this particular antigen. And it is only the hypermutated uh, antibody that will bind to glial cam. And more favorably, the binding is lower than for EBBNA1, but it is favored by particular phosphorylations. There's two serins. In the in the sequence of of, of uh, glial cam that increase the affinity of this antibody for the protein. So what the what the authors suggest, and I think makes a lot of sense, is that this uh, this B cells started up binding to binding and being activated by the recognition of EBBNA1 and suffer hypermutation, and that hypermutation allowed them to also bind to glial cam. And this is where you have the molecular mimicry in which the antibodies cannot Combined to the both to uh, the native to the endogenous protein and the uh, EVB derived one, and they test this also into they look into um, targeting of glial cam in, in other patients. So they have serum samples from other e uh, MS patients, and they show that it's in, it is quite frequently they find antibodies that are binding to the, this particular epitope of glial cam, and also higher when it is phosphorylated. So what the what this paper shows, and I think oh, it was really cool. I thought is that they show that this particular target uh, in MS patients, if you take PVMCs from MS patients and you activate and you stimulate them with EBBNA1 or a glial cam, some patients have actually very strong CD8 responses against uh, EBBNA EBBNA1 in both in healthy MS patients, but only mostly in, in the MS patients that this this uh, this response also cross reacts with glial cam. So there seems to be really a kind of redirection of the immune response against this antigen that uh, is very similar structurally to uh, an EVB derived peptide or sequence. So what next? So do you try to vaccinate against EVB? I don't know. I think. But will the vaccine cause MS? 
Well, I guess. Or do you pick like a completely different epitope that's not that one, so it can't cross react? And how do you map that? Like maybe that's it. Maybe you have to now figure out the the part of the EBV that's generating this antigenic complex, which I presumably can know. So you don't do that one. Yeah, I I think that's it. the problem is that, and they show now. I was also doing some some research to understand the the context around these papers. Is that there's a lot of like different peptides. It's not this only peptide. There have been other peptides derived from EBV that have been associated with MS. So I don't think only, I mean, the EBBNA1 is a nuclear, sorry, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not a, it's not a kind of a surface peptide, it's a, it's a transcription factor, so maybe it wouldn't be expressed. So maybe you don't need that one, you want to go with something that is expressed on the surface of the virus to, to have, like, prevent infection. Um, but, yeah, but I think that you need to, uh, mostly MS, or, sorry, uh, mono, mono, you can get ABB infection without any kind of, we're not really noticing without a severe acute infection. So right. I think it is the acute infection that really gets the virus, uh, gets the immune system kind of wired up to. So if maybe if you're, if we vac build the right vaccines, we'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, I heard somewhere that Moderna was developing, uh, but it, how do you test it? How, how do you do clinical trials? Like you have to get super young children because you get like adults makes no sense to vaccinate adults against it, does it? Yeah. So I, I mean, it really feel like I want to, I want to, if I ever have a kid, I want to get it vaccinated. But how, how do we get this vaccine out? I agree. All right. Well, we've been deep diving for a while here. So I'll make this last one quick. This one is the immunoregulatory landscape of human tuberculosis granulomas by Aaron F. McCaffrey et al. Uh, last author is Michael Angelo uh, in Nature Immunology that just came out the 20th of January. So this is an interesting paper in that it takes old records of granulomas, old tissues of tuberculosis granulomas, and tries to really understand the signaling in them because uh, they're so rare to get and try to process with tuberculosis infection and catching all of it. We've kind of eradicated most of it. It's a hard disease to study, but it's still a big problem. So what they try and understand is what the microenvironment of a granuloma is. Um, the, and what they do is they use this very interesting technique called multiplexed ion beam imaging by time of flight, MIBI-TOF. So what they do is they fire an ion at the tissue section. Or so, excuse me, first they coat the tissue with 20, 30 some odd antibodies. I want to say 37 with different metals attached to them, right? So, uh, you know, mass spec style antibodies and basically do an IHC, but you can't make that many colors up, right? But it's same concept for different immune complexes and cytokines. And, you know, so different cytokines, different cell surface markers. So super duper flow, but it's an IHC, right? And then they blast the whole section, but they know positionally where they were blasting at to suck off that little small spot. And then they send that small spot through a mass spectrometer to then measure the molecular weight that went in through there and convert that molecular weight based on what was there to, oh, it was a CD4, because that's what we said, you know, this metal ion attached to the antibody was. And so they use that to rebuild a histological image of the whole thing with 38 color, so to speak, if you want to think about it that way. So like a 30, or sorry, 37 air quote color IHC with pretty good resolution, right? And then they use that to understand what's happening in the granuloma. And they do it all the way through. They do a whole bunch of modeling and measure spatial relationships with a um, system. They have another acronym for this that I cannot remember. Uh, I'll give it to you in a second. It's, it's uh, where is it? Spatial LDA is what they call it. Um, 
uh, latent Ditchcliffe allocation, especially it's a, it's a, it's like when we think of Tisney or UMAP, but for spatial relationships to each other a little bit differently. Um, so they're trying to finger single cell identity and granuloma structure and how to spatially relate. And they go through all of this and there's 27 supplemental figures. And they get to the idea that in granulomas, in TB, interferon is depleted and TGF-beta is elevated, and it's enriched in regulatory C-cells and IDO1 and PDL1, which are both in immunosuppressive signaling pathway myeloid cells. And the blood of people with TB mirrors these trends. You can find MAR IDO1 and PDL1 as well. So you can see a signal in blood. Um, and PDL1 expression is associated with progression active TB and treatment response. Uh, but if you look at other granulomas, not the whole story is not true. I think they went and looked at um, what was not uh, sarcoidosis as a model here. And in sarcoid, they were able to find PDL1 was high, but the IDO1 was not. And so it really shows that they were able to figure out that the granuloma is a specific environment, identified PDL1 and IDO1 as systemic markers, which is really interesting. But really, then showed at, at a high level that um, it's enriched in TGF beta and down interferon gamma. So, what does that all mean? I think this hits nature level because of the technology used to be able to basically scan old slides point by point with 37 antibodies and figure it out. Um, it's a hard paper to read, particularly because they don't go into the technology a lot and you have to really dig. And there's 27 supplemental figures, which is a lot of supplemental figures. It just keeps going. And, and it's not like one panel supplemental figures. It's like a lot. A well, lot some scientists are very thorough with their supplementary information. Yes. So, but just to be sh to be clear, these uh, IDO and PDL1 is expressed basically on the myeloid cells in these granulomas. Correct. And, and there's more Tregs in there too that they're able to find. Right. And this is something that is specific of M of, of uh, MTB derived kind of granulomas. Probably right. is the the the, the 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 MTB is doing something is is helping this to generate this Correct. this environment. Yep. I I think that was already I don't want to say already known, but I think it was already associated that maybe I don't know I'm not exactly know about the IOT uh, wasn't the the interferon TGF beta was, but they weren't able to dive into the granuloma itself and figure out what was happening there. Right. They were able to do this sub-segmental sectioning fanciness. And I think that's really what, um, that's really what the paper's kind of impact is about, is that. Yeah, I guess that's very important because if you, the granuloma is so important, the structure of the thing is so important to understand the relationship between the cells in the granuloma that having this really spatial resolution makes a huge difference exactly all right so a shout out to uh to the authors i'm just also ch taking check, checking out the paper looking at the figures and they're so they're so nice yeah all right we're going to be talking to uh dr francesco colecci at cambridge university in just a few moments but before we deep dive into that sometimes we need to ensure reliable results with your immunology research like all the time from primary human stem cells to cell isolation kits. 
cell culture media, supplements, and antibodies, Stem Cell Technologies provides the tools you need for every step of your immunology research. Interested in cell isolation? Use EasyCEF to isolate highly purified immune cells from virtually any sample source in as little as eight minutes. Cells are viable, functional, and immediately ready for your downstream applications. Learn more at easycep.com. Hi, everyone. Today, we are talking to Dr. Francesco Golucci. He is a professor at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Cambridge University and a fellow of King's College. Uh, he will be talking to us, amongst other things, about his research exploring the role of uterine immune cells in pregnancy. Uh, and we're very happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brenda. It's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations on your podcast, which is great. So to uh, dive in, um, I don't think of immunology and uteruses that much. I mean, I know I should. It's an, kind of an interesting immune-privileged state you know, system. You obviously don't want your immune system going after a fetus, which is where I, where I think of the immunology going in. But you really dive into some interesting like ILC-related physiology, immunology um, that you've been able to uncover in the uterus. So could you kind of start there with at a high level what you've been able to find in uterine tissue as it relates to ILC function and specifically and then fetal development? Yes, yes, thank you. So um, it's true what you say that whenever we think about immunology of pregnancy, we think about this um, uh, you know, paradox of pregnancy, why doesn't the mother's immune system, uh, why doesn't it reject the fetus, which is half mismatched? And uh, that question has been um, really on the mind of uh, immunologists of reproduction for decades, since uh, Peter Medawar, uh, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 1960 for his discoveries in immunological tolerance, he actually formulated that question uh, and we've been thinking in those terms for decades, but lately we've we've really realized that um, um, actually the immune system of the mother engages in a conversation, a molecular conversation with the wannabe placental cells from the fetus. So these are the trophoblasts, right? So we, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but this uh, sort of a constructive uh, uh, interaction rather than conflicting uh, tension between the immune system of an individual and another individual. So um, it uh, it all started when I was in Paris, actually, when I was a postdoc um, with uh, Jim DeSanto, who is now one of the stars in the innate lymphoid cells world. And uh, there was a person who, were, you know, she was going to become a legend in the field of reproductive immunology. She is called Anne Croy, she's a retired professor. And um, we had just set up a model of uh, uh, NK cell deficiencies. And she was actually you know, commuting from Canada to Paris to use our uh, mouse models to look at what would happen to reproduction in these mice who didn't have NK cells. This was a model of severe combined immunodeficiency. And she, had such passion and uh, she basically influenced me and start, you know, sort of uh, planted the seed. And then, then when I went to Cambridge and I met another legend in the field who is um, uh, Ashley Moffitt, who is a sort of semi-retired professor here. And she was working in human um, uh, uterine and K cells. 
Uh, then I decided to start looking into mouse models of, um, so we, you know, we, because we were quite strong in flow cytometry, like all, you know, self-respecting immunologists, we said, let's take a look, you know, um, close look as a proper, you know, immunologist looking at subsets. Uh, this is, you know, this is the mid 2000, sort of 2004, 2005. And you may remember that the first ever paper on uh, innate lymphoid cells was published in 2008. And so in 2008, we also published a paper describing the phenotypic um, uh, diversity of uh, uh, NK cells in the uterus. And uh, some of them were innate lymphoid cells, but the, the word, you know, the, the phrase hadn't been <laughs> invented yet. So that's where we started. And then we realized that the NK cells in the uterus were not the same as the ones in the blood, which uh, people had already seen in other tissues like the liver. And then little by little, we've learned that innate lymphoid cells are really part of the physiology of the tissue they belong to. You know, this is true in the gut, in the skin, in the respiratory tract, and so is in the uterus. So we know in the case of NK cells, um, what you show in your latest uh, work, that they have a very important role in mediating some of the uh, restructuring of the trophoblast and the organization of the placenta that is dependent on NK cells. And I was actually quite surprised to hear because you now when you think of NK cells, natural killer cells, if you always feel of NK cells killing MHC negative cells or like in, you know, cell very important against uh, viruses and such things. And I think it's hard to picture these cytokines from NK cells being so important for tissue. Uh, remodeling. So maybe would you like to introduce us to particular this part of uterine, the, of uterine and K cells, and how then you studied their uh, their regulation in a way. Yes, yes. So that's that's a very good question. So yeah, you know we've got these cells that we like to call natural killers. It's a dramatic name, and then we find them in the uterus where they should help to build rather than to kill. And that's actually what they are. They are builders. This is a sort of, a, you know, when killers become builders is a, is a phrase um, uh, introduced by a colleague now retired called Le Boutillier, who wrote a, a commentary paper um, on a paper published by Ofer Mandelboim, a good colleague back in Jerusalem, who really showed uh, that also human uh, natural killer cells in the uterus help the vasculature to refurbish, basically, and uh, the placenta to differentiate. Now, that may be shocking, but if we go back to our knowledge of natural killer cells from, uh, you know, people's arms, so from healthy donors, you take the blood from, from healthy donors, and you look at NK cells, it's been known for many, many years that there are at least two types of NK cells, one of which is the true assassin cells. You know, these are um, uh, capable of killing tumor cells in petri dishes. Um, and the other subset, which is one in 10 of these cells circulating in our blood, they're actually not so good at killing. They can, but they're not as good as the 
as the professional killers. And this other subset, this one in 10 blood and K cells, they are much better at producing cytokines. Now, if we go into tissues, and that does not have to be the uterus, if we go into the liver, if we go into any other tissue, we see that um, the majority of uh, NK cells are actually the second type, so the type that produces cytokines. So there is already something inbuilt in the system which relates to what we were saying before, and that is innate lymphoid cells, whatever their um, lineage, you know, type one, type two, type three, they're really in sync with the physiology of the tissue. They've been influenced by the microenvironment there and they influence themselves, the microenvironment. So to go a bit more molecular and technical, um, a cytokine we find in abundance in the uterus is TGF-beta. And TGF-beta is found in the tumor microenvironment. So also in the tumor microenvironment, being a tissue, although abnormal, but also in the tumor microenvironment, unfortunately, there are more builders than killers within. So if you gate on uh, natural killer cells, if you uh, take them uh, out of the tumor, you do a flow um, and, and, and you ask them, you know, are you the type that kills or the type that produces cytokines? Also in tumors, we find more types of cells which respond to the gating of NK cells, but they're actually better producing cytokines than killing. And that's perhaps a way of the microenvironment to corrupt the immune cells to help them. What do I mean? Well, we know that there are similarities between some NK cells in the womb, in the uterus, and NK cells in the tumor microenvironment, and that is they help the vasculature. And obviously, uh, this is going to help tumor cells as well because it will bring in more oxygen. Um, so that's, that's an example of how the microenvironment um, influences the cells that are there in the tissue. So uh, the majority of natural killer cells in the uterus are not killers. They can, we can stimulate them to kill if we, you know, if we put them in, in, in vitro with the right cytokines, which again tells us that they are part of that lineage of killers, but they have adapted to the local environment and they are basically <clears throat> builders. So to kind of go along this a little bit, you talk about a pathway that's responsible for the, the non-killer natural killer cells, which I'm going to call natural cuddler, cuddler cells from now on, since they seem to be all happy and helpful. Natural cuddler, you know, cuddle. Oh, that's a, that's a good <laughs> you, you, can, you can steal it. Um, but for these non-killer killer cells, um, you talk about a pathway that's really interesting that I hadn't learned about before. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit, which is this CD94 NKG2A receptor. Mm. And then how it takes HLA-B packaged peptides, presents it to HLA-E, and then does something. Can, can you explain this like triple cascade with multiple yes. HLAs um, all in one non-killer killer cuddling T cell or yes. know, killer NK cell thing? <clears throat> yeah. Um, Jason, I can, I can see your experience in industry and how you're good at making, you know, 
great names and funny names that people can remember. But we may know as academics, we are terrible at <laughs> naming molecules and cells. So CD94 and KG2, it's horrible, it's a horrible. But let's call it A, just, just to make it simple. So this is an uh, inhibitory receptor, right? All respectable white blood cells, all respectable immune cells have inhibitory receptors, right? They are, these are off switches that all immune cells have to have to sort of regulate the extension and duration of an immune response. And we're familiar with these now because we target them with immune checkpoint inhibitors in cancer patients. We reawaken the immune system. Immune system goes into overdrive and, 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 and kills the tumor cells. So these off switches, including this receptor, let's call it A on NK cells, do the same things in NK cells. But in NK cells, they go to another level. And what they do, and this is the process that we've focused on, is they educate NK cells. Now this seems something like a bit esoteric, uh, but it, it has similarities with, um, and also fundamental differences with um, the education that happens to wannabe T cells that go into the thymus and that they are educated by interacting with self-MHC. Same for uh, natural killer cells. They basically, if they have a, an inhibitory receptor for self-MHC, they are set up to spring into action when they are needed. Let's leave it there. I'm happy to ask to, to answer other questions on the process if you want to know more. So this is the process of NK cell education. education. And um, this A receptor is on 95% of human NK cells in the womb and in about 50% of cells in the blood and about 50% of cells in womb of mice. So it's a relevant receptor. And we knew that education may be important for, um, for uterine NK cells to set them up for action. So we looked, uh, so what, what does it do? Um, it, this receptor interacts with self-MHC, but not the sort of famous HLA ABC that we know of, but a non-classical uh, HLA-E uh, molecule. This is the, one of the most ancient HLA. And uh, the receptor is also very ancient. It's been around since the time of dinosaurs, you know, because it hasn't changed from mouse to human. So it has been in the last common ancestor of mice and humans 80 million years ago. All right, so this ancient receptor and this ancient MHC, if they uh, interact, then they set up NK cells for uh, action. So this is education. However, we people are divided roughly 50-50 in those who can express a lot of HLA-E and those who cannot. And that is determined by a peptide in HLA-B, which gives <clears throat> uh, this leader peptide to HLA-E if I have methionine in position minus 21 of the leader peptide of HLA-B. But if my uh, sister instead has inherited the threonine at position minus 21 of the leader peptide of HLA-B, she will have a poor HLA-E expression. And therefore, I will educate my NK cells better than she will do. That's complicated. I'm just, I'm just going to put out there that we, 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 have a, we have a dinosaur era HLA that's getting another peptide from another HLA to map this out. And this was something, how was this determined? Like, like, like scientifically, like how did they figure out that you have 
like an HLA peptide handoff. Was this all GWAS studies and they found that through that initially? Or do you know? Because like that is that is obscure. I, I know who uh, has found uh, the importance of this dimorphism for NK cell education. And this is Amir Horowitz, uh, a good colleague and friend now at uh, um, Mount Sinai in New York, then at Stanford with Peter Parham, who is one of the giant of uh, HLA uh, and immunogenetics. Now, and it was, it has been known for many years that HLA-E expression depends on other HLA peptides. But you caught me off guard there. Um, and I, I don't have the answer for that. I don't, I don't remember who has discovered it and when. That's fine, but it, it, it's interesting knowledge. So we've done, we've, you know, we've used the mouse model of a, a net knockout for this A inhibitor receptor and realized that all the things that the NK cells had to do in the womb were done in a sluggish way. These had consequences on the placental, uh, uterine, re, re, sorry, vascular remodeling in the uterus. Um, uh, placental gene expression and fetal growth, including brain development. And in humans, in a big, big GWAS study, we saw that uh, women with that threonine that didn't allow a good HLA-E expression and therefore poor A education, NKG2A education, they were uh, they had a, a greater relative risk of developing a disorder of pregnancy called preeclampsia, which also associates with um, uh, fetal growth restriction often, and is uh, supposed to be caused by insufficient vascular uh, remodeling and uh, uh, placental differentiation. Yeah, it is. I, I realize it's complicated. I hope it makes sense. But also, I it took me a couple of reads to understand, which I thought was also a little bit contradictory, is that actually the expression of this inhibitory receptor that is required for education of, NK, of uterine NK T cells, is actually necessary for these cells to produce more interferon gamma upon uh, well, when they, they find themselves in the uterus and they, are, uh, they, they find trophoblasts and they have to generate this placenta. So I guess, but then I guess this comes in the in the frame that you mentioned that you either have cells that are cytotoxic or cells that are making cytokines and they seem to be two different profiles. I think that really helped me understand. Uh, but I, I was very, I was very, I thought it was really fascinating. How it shows how important it is, right, to uh, for the evolution of all the old placental organisms to have this very uh, basic cells that are always there that are going to in ensure the correct uh, irrigation, the correct vasculature, uh, and there's these innate cells that are, have been there for so many years, for so many evolutionary time. So I guess I want to ask you a little bit about more about your career. Uh, so you you have you are a physician scientist, so you're also an MD. And I guess that it must be very interesting to work in this kind of research that is so uh, relevant for many women that in this case are suffering with this, uh, with, with these uh, diseases such as eclampsia that 
uh, are really hard to understand. And often you, we don't completely understand the, the source. Um, you also study, you also, throughout your, your, your study and your research, you moved in many different countries. And I was wondering, maybe you want to share a little bit about your experience and what that has taught you with our listeners that would be interested in a similar career path. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Vernon. Yeah, um, I, I've been I've been around for a little while, mostly in Europe. In Europe. Um, so yes, I studied medicine, uh, and but I always had the back of the, my mind the idea that one day I would uh, I would uh, do research. I love research, and uh, so I finished medical school, and uh, I had an opportunity thanks to the an organization called the Swedish Institute. Uh, to go to uh, Sweden, to the University of Umeå, where I did my PhD, to simply do a research experience of nine months. And I fell in love, you know, I did that never, uh, never stopped then ever since, it was many, many years ago. Uh, and there I studied um, type one diabetes, uh, which was also, you know, very medically relevant, although I was using a mouse model. And, um, and then I remember, um, um, I mean, I, I don't know if this will be truly inspiring for younger colleagues, but I decided the town I wanted to do my uh, uh, my PhD, and that was Paris. I, I decided I had to go to Paris, uh, and uh, I was lucky to start working with uh, Jim DeSanto, as I said, who was just setting, you know, starting up his lab, and we were very successful. Me as postdoc, and he as uh, uh, PI, we started to work on uh, development of NK cells and how they mm, uh, recognize and kill cancer cells. And um, and then then I moved on to have my first job at the Pasteur Institute as a associate professor. Um, so as a member of staff at the Pasteur Institute, I had a permanent job. But uh, then I had um, the good fortune uh, of uh, well. Um, um, so, so personal life got in the way, although I love being in Paris and my uh, then-to-be wife also loved being in Paris, but her being British, we decided to give it a go to her uh, native um, island. So we moved here in Cambridge um, about 17 years ago. And um, um, so when you, when, you, when you change countries so many times, you see so many different um, academic institutions, um, you become more adaptable and you worry less about a defined career path. So whenever, you know, students, um, undergraduate students in college where I help them studying immunology medicine or my, uh, my grad PhD students in the lab or, or even postdoc help me, um, sorry, ask me uh, for some help and advice on in their career path, I always say, just do what you really are passionate about. And then a career path is best described backwards. So from where you have arrived and you say what you've done rather than trying to do always the right step because it basically means that you're playing catching up uh, and you're trying to fit and conform. Uh, while if you just, you know, for example, I had a, an MD, I didn't have to have a PhD. I did it simply because I realized I was so bad in the lab <laughs> since I had no experience when I finished medical school at 27 or whatever, that I, I said, you know, I really need to 
dig deep and, and uh, uh, spend time with the other PhD students, although they were you know, five years younger than me. Uh, and uh, um, in my case, it turned out to be okay. Uh, but what, what I, I like to say to younger colleagues is just focus on your personal growth and development because if you focus on getting a nature paper, you have one chance in a hundred of succeeding. If you, if you focus on your personal growth and development, you have a hundred percent chance of succeeding. And in doing that, you know, we will try to get the nature paper anyway. And sometimes it does happen. But um, I think best investment is in, in yourself. It's what I say always to young people. And, and changing um, labs or countries, um, Brenda, you've done it as well. It is um, um, tough, uh, but also very stimulating. Couldn't agree more. Jason, you gotta yeah. move out. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I've already I've done <laughs> enough moving. I've, I've, I've moved a lot. Um, but but I, I guess my follow up is in the it's about being an MD PhD, and so in the US there's often a conflict um, for academic MD PhDs in that your um, institute wants you to be two people. <clears throat> Instead of being a hybrid MD PhD where you split, they want you to generate all the clinical revenue of a regular MD plus grant revenue of a PhD. And in so much as your grant revenue of a PhD goes up, then you can spend a little less time in the clinic, but the clinic always kind of comes up behind you and tries to suck you back in because clinical medicine in the U.S. is so profitable to the institutions that there's this motivation to have that. Now, being in a place with something that, as far as I'm concerned, is a, unicorn, is a mythical unicorn, a.k.a. a national health system of some form, um, where there isn't a profit motive, do you guys have that conflict, or is because, or for other reasons, clinical medicine being treated not quite the same market-driven approach it is in the U.S.? that you then don't have this conflict between the MD part and the PhD part of your life. Okay, so Jason, I, I should clarify, I'm not clinically active, so I don't experience this conflict personally, but I do have uh, other colleagues who, um, who do have that conflict. It is not as um, intense as in the US for the reasons that you've just uh, said, but there is, or, you know, it's, it, it is, um, demanding and um, there are structures in places for young colleagues who uh, to, so for example the first author of the paper we just published in immunity uh, Norman Shreve is called is a, is, a, is a young clinician who uh, decided to uh, do a PhD in our lab and now he's a clinical lecturer and he has some research protected time but he's also you know, quite involved still with clinical activity. And um, so, yeah, there are challenges. It's very, very uh, quite difficult. And, you know, I, I could candidly say that I'm a failure in that uh, I never managed to do both because I would have loved to do both, but I was maybe in my sort of romantic approach to life and science. I said, you know, I, I just have to... Uh, dedicate myself completely to research and one day I will go back to clinic that has never happened and probably will never happen for this lifetime 
so it is quite very, very difficult to do both. And I do admire people that managed to be so organized and so energetic to be clinically active and do uh, you know an impact in science and research. I think it's a course talent and skills. I guess in that in that uh, line of of thought, we wanted to ask you. Like to ask some questions, David. Maybe not necessarily related to research, but of life in general of our guests. And I sure. guess it's a good time to ask you. For example. Uh, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given and doesn't need to be a professional, also life advice that you'd like to share with our listeners? Okay, thank you. So, yeah. Um, so the best piece of advice, I have a couple, if I may elaborate. So, the, But the first one is from an uncle of mine whose name was unfortunately passed away uh, quite young, he was Tommaso Meno. He was also like me, a uh, uh, um, clinically trained scientist, an immunologist, immunogeneticist, who uh, trained with Ruggero Cettellini, who's been one of the main uh, names in the in HLA. And um, he, uh, so before, before going to Sweden for my first ever experience in research, I spent a few months in his lab. He had a lab at the Pasteur Institute and I remember once he told me, as soon as you learn to do something with your right hand, I'm right-handed, um, challenge yourself to learn it, to do it with your left hand. And, uh, and I went, what is he talking about? Why do I have to pipe that with my left hand? And so, but then I realized, I mean, it's so important to keep challenging yourself, never get too comfortable not just for the practical things, but also mentally. And I guess moving is part of that uh, attitude. Um, and then, and then my um, uh, PhD, one of my PhD supervisors, Takeshi Matsunaga, um, uh, he also gave me a couple of uh, very important uh, advices, which I'm still working on. I don't think uh, I've, I've, I've um, managed to uh, do what he suggested me, and there was two things. One was too much information kills information. You know, in presentation, in writing papers, I'm still struggling. I, I think I always overload in information, but that you know came with this sort of Japanese minimalistic, beautiful um, culture. And the other one was um, um, speak slow and think fast, which I also still trying to, to achieve. But I like to share these pieces of advice with my younger colleagues whenever they join the lab, whenever we have an opportunity. I think they've helped me and they're still um, with me every day. Thank you very much. They'll be with a couple thousand more people or more, who knows, <laughs> once we go oh, wow. Well, thank you for your time today. Um, do you have any, do you have a lab website or a Twitter account or any uh, open positions or anything else you want to plug here before we wrap up for the day? Um, no, I don't have open positions yet. We hope to have them uh, in 2022, soon in a few months time. I do have a Twitter account and that is at doctor, as in DR, Fran underscore Colucci. Awesome. And we'll be sure to tag that on our uh, show notes as well for all of you. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you for joining us. It was a Thank great you very much again. Congratulations for your podcast. It's a, it's a great success among all my younger colleagues and we'll keep following you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests if you can think of someone. See you next time.